Today's sermon text is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Everybody, it's good to see you this morning. My name is Chris Bennett, and um, we are gearing up to wrap up our current series on the book of Proverbs. I am well aware that we're in a series in the book of Proverbs, and I've not been in Proverbs for like three weeks, Um, but we're dealing with some sort of complex, sometimes controversial stuff in the book of Proverbs that people, I think, tend to trip over, and I want to help people read it and understand God's word and have clarity on how to apply it to their lives. And uh, before I get into that, though, I do want to mention that beginning Sunday, December the 3rd, we are going to be launching our Advent series. It's called The Waiting. And what we're going to be doing for the four weeks of Advent is highlighting four particular characters. Um, Do you guys have a good honeymoon? Awesome. So (laughs) I haven't seen them in so long. Um, So that was a long honeymoon. Not fair. So uh, uh, beginning December 3rd, we're going to highlight four characters in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and uh, who wrote the, who composed these songs, these prophetic cries. And uh, the first character is, of course, Mary, who rejoiced with this incredible prophetic word Uh, when she learned that the Messiah was growing in her womb. And the second character that we're going to be teaching on the following week, on the 10th, is uh, Zechariah, uh, the father of John the Baptist, who gave an incredible prophetic oracle uh, related to John the Baptist forerunning Jesus and the Messiah, and and just incredible stuff. And then the third week, we're going to talk about the angels who made the glorious proclamation of the birth of the Messiah to the shepherds. And then finally, we're going to highlight this sort of obscure man named Simeon, who was very old, who apparently was close to dying. And his one prayer through his life was that God would allow him to see, to lay his own eyes on the person of the Messiah. And when Jesus was brought to the temple, when he was eight days old to be dedicated, God allowed him to see and dedicate the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the world, and uh, gave a really, a really interesting, encouraging, and yet troubling and disturbing word to Mary and, and Joseph. And so, uh, Christmas wasn't all about nostalgia back then. There was some, there were some interesting things happening. So, I'm really excited about that series. I can't wait till we launch into that. And so, that begins on Sunday, uh, December third. Don't forget the announcement I made last week, and that is, uh, we are not having services the final Sunday of this year. That Sunday. December 31st. We're giving all of our volunteers a break. We're encouraging you to be at home with your family or wherever with your family and uh, worship with them and, uh, and be together. So I uh, want to uh, remind everybody that just, just to give you some a framework here for this morning, we're talking a couple of things I want you to remember as we get into today. The first thing is this. The book of Proverbs is a book about how to live skillfully in a fallen world. Living skillfully in a fallen world. The book of Proverbs helps us to get into the weeds of life. It, doesn't, it, gets, it gets even further below all of the broad black and white rules on what to do and what not to do and begins to show us 
how to interact with the nuances and complexities in life where there doesn't seem to always be clear direction on which way to go, when it seems like there might be seven or eight ways to go rather than one or two. And so keep that in mind. We're talking about living skillfully in a broken world. The second thing is this. As we... uh, made our way through the book of Proverbs. We bounced around the first 10 chapters, as we said, at the beginning of the series. We came to Proverbs chapter 3, where in the first 12 verses of Proverbs 3, there are these seeming promises that are made. That if you raise your kids a certain way, they won't depart from serving God um, or doing what's right. If you... Uh, Make sure that you cling to love and faithfulness, then you'll have refreshment in your bones. If you, um, uh, all all these things that you do, like if you honor God with the with the first fruits of your wealth and and all your substance, then um, then your vats will be overflowing with wine and your barns will be filled with plenty. And so there are these seeming promises that are made. And the reason why we're taking like the last month to deal with this is because so many people read that. And they stumble over those words because we know a lot of people, and maybe those people are ourselves, where we've done those things and we didn't experience that promise coming to fruition. And so the the question is, can we trust God? Is God good? And so these are big questions. And so what we're doing is digging into this. The, the, the anal side of me really wants to go back over the last month and review everything that we've taught to get everybody up to speed. I can't do that. I don't have that kind of time. But I will dip back into last week for a few minutes because last week sets the stage for today. So I want you guys to throw that slide up on the screen. And I want to read a verse in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, I'm going to say this. Um, I say this with... Um, some reticence here. I believe that today's message could come across as very dense, very heady, uh, very complex. Maybe you might walk away thinking, man, I'm not in seminary. Would you just preach to me and give me something I can, just one thing, give me some one thing that I can remember. Um, I'm not trying to impress anyone. I'm not trying to make your head spin. I'm not trying to confuse anyone today. Um, also, I reject the notion that I've heard many, many times, and that notion is this. I've literally had people tell me, the sheep are too dumb to think. Make it simple. Well, the problem with that is generations of that kind of thinking have led to a lot of sheep who have a lot of unanswered questions. And I reject the idea that sheep are dumb. I reject that. I think that there are people out there who really want to dig into Scripture and immerse themselves in it and just swan dive into the riches and, the, and the, just the glory of Scripture. And so um, I want to remind you that a book like Romans, anybody think Romans is a really, really easy book to read? Uh, you shouldn't put your hand in the air. I should, maybe I shouldn't have asked for a raise of hands. Um, nobody raised their hand. Thank you. Uh, it's, I don't find it to be a very easy book to read or interpret. That book was written to barely literate people 2,000 years ago living in uh, the slums of the city of Rome. And this book would have been read aloud, and they had no uh, nursing mother's room or nursery. It would have been crazy town, I'm sure, reading that book aloud. All 16 chapters in one sitting. It would have required thinking. It would have required focus and concentration. The book of Revelation. Anybody think that's, a, again, rhetorical question. Anybody think that's a really easy book to interpret? Um, it's not. And the book of Revelation appeals to the abstract side of our brains. I forget if that's left or right brain. Um, it appeals to the abstract side of our brain, and it demands that we think with imagery, that we think poetically, that we think with pictures, that we think artistically. Um, the book of Revelation is not an easy book to read. Also written to a group of churches in modern-day Turkey that would have circulated that book and read that book aloud and passed it along to the next church. That being said, I think the idea that churches should hear really, really simple, simplistic ideas from the pulpit, I reject. I don't think, the, I don't think that stands up to Scripture. So I'm just saying that because I need you to think with me today. Don't put me in a position where I feed you and get you all amped up because that's not going to happen today. I'm just going to let you know on the front end. This is not going to be an exciting word unless the truth of it excites your heart, which is really cool. So jumping into it, I want to remind you of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where Scripture says this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, who later became Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house 
to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will make of you a great nation, pardon me. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that's big. Now when you read families or nations in scripture, that you need to read in parentheses, you need to see ethnic groups. That's what it means. It doesn't mean like the chi- like China or Canada or Australia. It means ethnic groups. It means people groups. And so when God says to him, I am going to bless you, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing to all the nations or the families of the earth. He's saying, I want you, your seed, the ethnic group that will come to be known as the Hebrews, later the Jews, they are going to be a blessing to all of the people of the earth, all of the nations of the earth, all of the ethnic groups of the earth. And so that informs us right at the outset that we need to be really, really careful to look for and to, with, I think, um, extreme prejudice, eliminate racial prejudice that is in our lives. Any nuance of it, any of it. If we allow any racial prejudice in our lives, it's not like that's just sort of like having the sniffles on the spectrum or the continuum of sin where you've got murder and then maybe I've got some racism in my heart that's some maybe mild racism. Any kind of racial bigotry that is inside of us is a rejection of God's ways, of God's plan, his master plan to bring redemption to the whole earth. And so anything in us that dislikes a a, a person of of a different race or ethnic group because of whatever reason we might think of that we think is justifiable is, is a rejection of the will and the ways and the heart of the living God. So he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your family. Okay? Now, remember, we're talking about what does it look like to be blessed. What does that look like? Because again, you've got people that feel that God doesn't love them anymore because they've given money in the offering every week. They've come to church every Sunday. They teach their kids God's word. And then when bad things happen in their lives, they wonder what they did wrong to deserve that. And then there are those on the other side who say that, man, I am so blessed and it's because I've given money in the offering. It's because I've raised my kids a certain way. It's because I've done all these things. And we look at our lives as though we've merited blessings or God has cursed us and taken them away from us because we've done something wrong. And I think as we'll see as we get into the scriptures today, that does not hold up. It does not stand up to the gospel uh, or the Bible. And so uh, I want to I throw that, uh, yeah, that's already on there. So we've got this diagram that I walked through last week, and it's basically a diagram of your life and your heritage if you follow Jesus. Now, I'm going to go through this really quickly. There's a lot of stuff that this diagram is missing, okay? So if you're sitting there right now and you're getting the email ready to type out like you forgot about King David and the root of Jesse and all this stuff, I know, I know, I know, I know, I, forgot, I, know, I didn't forget about it. I just don't, this sermon could be a college course. I mean, it could be a course that lasts for weeks. And so, uh, but briefly, briefly, in a simplified way, I want to talk about our heritage in Christ. If you are, this applies to you only if you're in Christ, okay? So God, now this applies to everybody. Creation. God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and 2, you can read about that. And in Genesis 1 and 2, he created the whole world. And it seems as though it was still in a state of kind of a, a chaos, And then he created humanity and said to humanity, I want you to be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue the earth. Take what I've given, this beautiful thing that I've made, and I want you to cultivate it and make it even more beautiful. So we are an extension of God's creative power. And if you go back to uh, the beginning of our series in Proverbs, we learned that creation is an extension of God's wisdom. The scriptures say in Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs and in Jeremiah, that God created the earth by his wisdom. He he created with the tool of his power, but the impulse of creation was his wisdom. 
it was a good idea for God to make this world and to give it to us under our stewardship to cultivate it for the glory of God. But here's the problem. We wanted to live according to our own way. And so humanity rebelled against God. And then there's this vignette, this snapshot in Genesis chapter 4 of the effects of our rebellion against God. And it's this story of these two boys named Cain and Abel. And Cain, who is envious of his brother and jealous of his brother, kills him. Kills him. And we're already seeing four chapters into the book of Genesis the effects of the fall on humanity. Effects that have infected all of us. All of us. And so after the, as we see the effects of the fall, this evil and suffering that, that causes humanity to sort of, as I said last week, swirl around the toilet bowl, uh, God judges the earth. He judges the earth with a great flood. And through the flood, he saves one family. And yet... The offspring of this one family continues to make the earth more and more and more evil and wicked. And so God, out of all of the earth, and he said with, back in, to Noah, he made a covenant with Noah, I won't judge the earth of the flood ever again. And so rather than judging the earth, he selects this obscure person named Abram. Um, this Semitic person living in the uh, modern-day Iraq. And he takes Abram and he says, I want you to leave your father's house, leave everything, and go to the land that I'm showing you because I am going to use your offspring to bring blessings to every ethnic group in the world. Now, the interesting thing is, is that Abram was well past the age of having babies. The Bible says experiencing pleasure. And so, um, it's in the Bible, so don't judge me. But um, actually, Sarah said that about herself. <laughs> Can I experience pleasure in my old age? And so, kind of one of the funniest verses in the Bible, I think. So, um, and so, she, she says that. And so, Abraham, Abram and Sarah get this promise from God that they are going to experience pleasure and have babies. And yet, they're really, really, really old. And she's barren. She can't have babies. And God said to Abraham, step outside of your tent, look at the, st- scar- the, st- the stars in the sky, and look at the sand in front of you. Your lineage is going to be as numerous as all of that. And he's like, whoa. And the crazy thing is, is that in spite of the unbelievable, impossible odds of this, he believed God. And God said, because you trusted me, in spite of the unbelievable, impossible odds, I view you, I make you righteous in my sight. You are, the, you are righteous. Your status before me is, is you are right with me. And so Abraham has babies. He's got a son and his son, baby. His son's name is Isaac. And Isaac gets married and they have the same problem. They can't have babies. And then God allows them to have a baby. And his son's name is Jacob. And God changes Jacob's name to Joseph. And Joseph has 12 sons. And these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, the Hebrews. And through this long hundreds and hundreds of years, the Hebrews, God saves them from Egyptian slavery and he gives them this constitution called the law where he shapes them as his new country, as a new civilization, so to speak. And this new country that is blessed by God, that are sons and daughters of Abraham, this country is going to be the people group, the Hebrews, that God uses to bring the blessings of God to all the ethnic groups of the world. The problem is that they fail miserably. They fail terribly. Once you get into the era of the kings where you've got from after Solomon, there's one unrighteous king after another who is leading Israel. Israel goes into a civil war. It splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is obliterated in the 8th century by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, about 150 years later, is carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. And as they're being carried off into captivity, they feel like aliens. They feel... Uh, They feel violated by God, like as though God's been unfaithful to them. But this is the punishment that God told Moses to tell the Israelites about hundreds of years earlier. That if you're not faithful, you're going to lose the land that I'm giving you, the promised land. So they're being carried away. And then later on, there's this prophecy that's given about uh, this thing called the root of Jesse. And the idea, the imagery is, is that Israel is like a tree that's been cut down. It's dead. It looks dead. It's gone. Its glory, its grandeur has been forgotten by history. And yet out of this stump grows this little branch, this little branch of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David. 
This is after, the, after King David and Solomon hundreds of years later. And it's, uh, the, the prophecy basically is this, is that Israel's glory is going to be restored. There will be a king who will lead from the lineage of King David. Just trust God in this. And one day, this, in this obscure part of Israel that's currently under Roman occupation, there's this family who has this baby. And she's a single mom. She's not married yet. She's only betrothed or engaged to her husband-to-be, her groom, Joseph. And the Holy Spirit comes upon her and places in her womb a baby boy. And that baby is to be called Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who will take away the sins of Israel. He will restore Israel to its calling. Well, these ancient Israelites thought that, oh, here's what's going to happen. The, the temple's going to be gloriously, going to be glorious. The Romans are going to be uh, removed from the land, and everything's going to be awesome. And um, that doesn't happen because Jesus grows up, and Jesus lives faithfully before God. And where Israel failed God, Jesus was faithful. He was faithful. And he became the one faithful Israelite. And not only that, he was unjustly killed. He was unjustly killed. And his blood was shed for our sins. And he was resurrected from the dead. And that was God's way of saying, hey, this is me. Jesus and me, we're one. We're the same. You can take everything Jesus said before he died to the bank because it's the word of God and I will vindicate him by raising him from the dead. And if you put your faith in him, you are of him, you are in him and here's something amazing that's going to happen. You are going to be, you're, you are going to be sons and daughters of Abraham, meaning you are going to have, be restored to your mandate to bring the blessings of Abraham the blessings of God to all the ethnic groups of the earth if you put your faith in Jesus. You too will be raised from your state of spiritual death. You will be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Paul said to the Ephesians. And these people who put their faith in Jesus are, are to be, come to be known as the church, the new Israel made up of both Jews and Gentiles who have their faith in Jesus. And these Jews and Gentiles, we are living in this unique place where we are between the promised land. The promised land is behind us. And in front of us is the new creation. The new creation, I know I say this a lot, I don't apologize because if you've grown up in church, you, it's been drummed into your head that your future after death is that you are going to be an invisible person who's dancing in the clouds, playing a harp in an eternal church service. No wonder why so many kids reject the gospel. That is not what our future is. If you are in Christ, this is your future and it is clearly spelled out in scripture. There will be a day that Jesus returns and Jesus will obliterate and eliminate every, every molecule of sin and disease and death and satanic interference and suffering from this earth. And he will remake this earth and he will take the heavens and the earth and merge them into one. And the glory of God, the glory of his face will illuminate the new creation, and he will resurrect all of us who are faithful in Christ from the dead, and we will be given new bodies with blood pumping through our veins, and we will never, ever die, ever die. We will never, ever get sick. We will never, ever suffer. But the, the love of our life, the desire of our hearts will be fulfilled. We will be made like Jesus fully and completely. That's what the scriptures call being glorified. And we will live on this earth and we will follow Jesus and we will love one another and we'll help Jesus manage the earth and we'll see God's face as clearly as we see each other's face and we will have an absolute blast for all eternity. I know that sounds impossible to believe, but God made the earth to begin with, didn't he? God made the cosmos to begin with. He said, let there be light and light happened. Why can't he do that again? I think this is totally believable and I can't wait until this happens.
I can't. And when you have an understanding of what your future is in Jesus, you're going to pray less prayers like this. Like, Lord, please let me get married before I die because I really want to have sex one day. Can we, can we be honest? Lord, please let me experience this before I die because I feel like if I die before that happens, I'm going to miss out on the good life and have to end up going to heaven. And when you understand the new creation, you know that you're not missing out on anything. If Jesus comes one second from now, it is going to be the greatest, most exhilarating moment of our lives. And that moment will never end, ever. This is our story. This is who you are. You are sons and daughters of Abraham. You have been given the same mandate to bring the blessings of God to all the the ethnic groups of the earth. Now, let's move on. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the promised land. Is that what that says? That he would be the heir of the world. The heir of the world. Abraham and his children are the heirs of the world. This is what happens when you look at the Old Testament through New Testament eyes. People in the early church weren't fighting over the promised land. People in the early church had a global perspective because they knew that the promised land was just a taste of what it would look like. You go back to, I'm getting, I'm getting to do a lecture tomorrow night in the life of Solomon at, at, a, at a local uh, uh, place. And in, this, in, this, in, in Solomon's reign, the first 20 years of his reign were the glory years of Israel. Israel was prosperous. It was a great and mighty nation. It had no battles, no wars. It wasn't sideways with anybody else. People had traveled to come in and see Solomon's wisdom. It was glorious, but it was short-lived. Those were the best years in Israel. That was just a taste of what the entire world is going to be when Jesus reigns over this world in the age to come, the new creation. And so this is what the early church leaders were looking toward. They weren't looking back toward trying to make sure that the Romans were expelled from the promised land. They were thinking, I'm not sure they would have liked that, but they were thinking about the whole world being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And so this is why Paul says this in Romans. The promise that Abraham and his offspring would be the heirs of the world. The heirs of the world. Look at Acts chapter 3 verse 25 and 26. Um, Peter says this, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so one of the first sermons we see in the early church, you've got Peter saying, talking about, Us being sons and daughters of Abraham and the mandate that all the families, all the ethnic groups of the earth would be blessed. And this is what he says about that. And God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first. He sent him to the the Jews first. Meaning, these people are going to be sent in Jesus' stead to the rest of the earth. And here's what they're going to do. Jesus was sent to the Jews first to bless you by giving you new houses and new cars and full bank accounts and lots of new clothes. By writing a check to that Christian network that says, if you do an Isaiah 55 check and make it out for $55, then God will multiply that a hundredfold and it'll be in your bank this week. No, that is not what the blessings of God mean. Peter here defines for us what the blessings of God look like from a New Testament perspective. And he says this, that Jesus was sent to the Jews to bless them by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Catherine, with her beautiful Irish accent, read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And she read to us how we were dead in our trespasses the trespasses of our sins and how God in his mercy and grace came to us and raised us up. Not by our own works, not by our own merit, but he restored us to peace with God because of Jesus alone. That's the gift of grace that God's given us. 
This is what it means to be blessed. This is what it means to be blessed. That's why you can look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I referenced this last week. I'll reference it again. 1 Peter 1 verse 1 says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now he's writing to people who are in modern day Turkey again. That area of Asia Minor, right near the Middle East. In the Middle East, sort of. And he's writing to a group of churches up there. And he says this to these churches. He, he introduces who the writer is. I'm Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now that's fascinating. Because the people that he's writing to, most theologians agree, are not Jewish people who've come to Christ. These are Gentiles. These were people who were pagan idolaters. These were people who did not grow up in Christian households or didn't grow up in Jewish households in which they studied the, the, you know, the books of Moses. These were people who made pagan sacrifices and carried on in gross rituals and strange rituals. And he says, you people who have come to faith in Jesus, you are elect exiles. He uses imagery related to the Israelites' epic, their struggle in God. He says first, you are elect. You are chosen by God. You're chosen. Just like Abram was chosen to bring God's blessings to all the ethnic groups of the earth, he says, you are chosen and you have been dispersed. You are sent all over the earth and you're to bring Abraham's blessings. What are Abraham's blessings again? Somebody say it really loud. To turn us from our wickedness. And he says, you're not just elect, but you're exiles. You're not living in your homeland. In another place, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't mean when he says that, that our destiny is to go to heaven one day. Now, I may be wrong about this, but I think that when people die, they go to heaven. But there's going to be a moment when Jesus returns when there will be a resurrection from the dead and those people who died in Christ will receive new bodies from Jesus and we will live on this new earth, a new creation. So people do go to heaven in that regard, I think. But they're elect exiles. They're living in the world. It's like they've been expelled from the homeland that they belong to. But it's not because of their sin. We've been expelled from our homeland because this earth in its present condition is not our home. That's why Paul called it the present evil age. We are living in the present evil age. And there's a big difference between people who Solomon was writing to in Proverbs who are living in the promised land and people like us, modern day Christians, Jewish and Gentile alike, who are living in the present evil age. The promised land is thousands of years behind us. We don't know when the new creation is going to happen, but we're living in this place where we are elect exiles of the dispersion and we have a call to bring the blessings of God to all the families on all the ethnic groups of the earth. You cannot read the Bible without prejudice and, and walk away not feeling the incredible burden and responsibility the stewardship to love and serve every kind of person really well. You cannot read it. If you read it with, the, with your own lens, yeah, you'll come up with your own crazy theology. Hey, the Nazis read the Bible. But if you read the Bible objectively, There's no way you can walk away from that Bible and not think, I'm a son and daughter of Abraham if I'm in Jesus. And God has called me to be a blessing, to bring his blessings to all the people of the earth. Everybody I touch. People who are mean and people who are nice. People who are black, people who are white. People who are Republican, people who are Democrat. People who are this, people who are that. It doesn't matter what they look like, what they think, what they believe in. God has called me to bring the blessings of Abraham to every person. Which means that the implication is, is that I am in sin and I am wrong if I am harboring any bitterness towards people groups in my life. If I am harboring the slightest prejudice towards other ethnic groups or people groups, then I am wrong. Those daggum Pentecostals, man. 
Baptists. Man, Calvinists, man, those guys are nutty. You know, anything, you, you, any kind of bitterness that we harbor in our hearts towards ethnic people groups, towards uh, intellectual groups, whatever, we are wrong. God has called us to bring the blessings of Abraham to people all over the earth without prejudice. This is who we are. This is who you are if you are in Christ. If you say that I'm a follower of Jesus, that's who you are. Now, the sad thing is, is that we got people today who are flaming racists who would claim Jesus. And it is not of Jesus. It is a rejection of our mandate as people in Jesus. So we got to watch ourselves. Because we live in a broken world, and we're going to be around people groupings. And people groupings, we're going to see characteristics that are going to bother us. And they're going to prejudice our heart against them. And we've got to fight against that impulse. That impulse is evil. It is demonic. We have to fight against it. If you find yourself thinking something racial, something ethnically elitist, you've got to identify it. You've got to call it out. Hey, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I thought that. Expel it. Hate this stuff. Hate it. The Bible talks about hating things like God hates things. Hate that. Hate prejudice. Hate it. And so we're elect exiles. Now, I want, to, I want to take us in for a landing by talking about a couple of things here. Um, there's this several verses in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, that we really need to think about. In Proverbs 2, 20 through 22, this chapter is concluding after Solomon has gone to great lengths to talk about what will happen in his son's life if his son listens to his teachings. He says, son, if you listen to my teachings, then he says this beautiful, beautiful, in this beautiful poetic way, he says, my, he says, wisdom will enter into your heart. It'll become part of you. It'll become a characteristic of you if you meditate on my teachings. And he says, if you meditate on my teachings and wisdom becomes a part of you, here's what's really cool. You will grow in discretion and discernment and caution. And you will steward your life and your family's life really, really well. I want that. I don't know about you, but I want that for me. I know how much of a knucklehead I can be at times. But then he concludes chapter 2 with these words in Proverbs 2, 20 through 22. Check this out. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of, right, of the righteous. Man, anybody want that? To walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous? Anybody? We're going to be here till 1 o'clock. I'm going to win. I'm, I'm going to win today. Okay, thank you. All right. What'd you say? That was a bad joke, Jason. I'm not even going to say it out loud. Uh, so you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land. The land. And those with integrity will remain in the land. But the wicked will be cut off from the land. And the treacherous will be rooted out of the land. Why does he say this? Because they're living under the Mosaic covenant. That covenant that is a physical covenant that has them living in the promised land. Now, I'm going to show a diagram in just a second. Don't put it up there yet because I need to give this disclaimer. People, anybody here in here who's had theological training, you're going to want to chew in your Bible when you see this. I'm sorry. This is, this is a little bit oversimplified. But what I'm trying to attempt to do is to bring um, some basic handles to our church on how to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because I think that a lot of people, including tons and tons of preachers, don't know how to thread this needle, which is why at times there's really, really bad preaching and teaching, especially concerning blessings. 
Okay, Uh, the prosperity gospel erupted in the early 1900s and still is blowing, raging strong today because of bad teaching and a lack of this understanding. So I want to put that diagram up on the board. And um, you're going to notice that I've got two columns, several columns. The first column is the Old Covenant. The second is the New Covenant. When you see Old Covenant, think like Old Testament, generally. The New Covenant, think grace. Think being in Christ. Think being saved, okay? Now, down the side, there are categories that I've put together. Place, provision, provision, protection, presence, and I could not think of a P word for sign. And I almost put P sign on there and the, make the P silent. And then I had somebody walk to me after service. He goes, hey, I got your P word. It's proof. And I was like, oh, why did I think of that? Because I spent like an hour, an hour of my week, I dedicated to thinking about a P word that is a synonym with sign, and I couldn't think of one. Thesaurus.com didn't help. And then a person walked up to me later, and she says, I got your P word. She said, premonition. And I went, premonition? Um, I don't think that's what I meant mean by sign. So um, she's not here right now. So uh, we've, got, we've got place. So in the Old Covenant, the place, of, the place of God's people was the promised land. They lived in the promised land. In the New Covenant, the place of God's people, we're exiles. We don't have a promised land. We live in the present evil age. And everywhere on this earth is the present evil age. That's why there's no place you can move to and it's going to get better. People are moving out of Memphis to Nashville. It is not going to get better in Nashville. It's not going to be better in New York City. It's not going to be better in Florida or Nebraska. Whoever would want to go to Nebraska. But anyway, um, so it's not going to be better in these places because the present evil age is everywhere. Demonic principalities and powers control cultural liturgies and behaviors and practices all over the whole earth. Everywhere you go, it may look different and feel different, but it's going to hurt wherever you live. The grass is not greener in this world. It's just not. When it comes to provision, God made a promise to the Israelites that if they're faithful to him, that he would provide for them abundantly, abundant resources in the promised land. Abundant resources. In the new covenant, we don't get that promise. Jesus says, if you follow me, then I will provide for your needs. I'll give you what you need. The New Testament systematically teaches contentment. Be happy with what you got. Quit longing for more. More, more, more. The New Testament does not teach that if you put money in the offering plate, then you're going to have a new car. Turn the channel. Quit watching that garbage. It is not biblical. It's heretical. It is not biblical. There are, Jesus said this way. He said it rains on the just and on the unjust. Which, the inverse of that, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. Your physical blessings or your physical impairments are not a sign of whether God loves you or not. God loves you because of the Spirit of Christ that is inside of you. And there's nothing you can do to make Him love you more or love you less. He loves you. He loves you. I had a person walk to me and ask for prayer. And and it was after one of my recent sermons. And she said, I just want to tell you, I'm so relieved. I felt like because of this physical impairment that I'm facing in my life, that maybe God was mad at me. And I just reminded her, God loves you. He's not mad at you. He loves you. He wants to be with you. He is with you through this. He's not mad at you because you're dealing with this. He loves you. So that's provision. What about protection? In the promised land, the Israelites were promised protection from foreign invaders. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, Moses is, about to, Moses is about to kick the bucket. God's told him, you're not going to the promised land, but your people are. He's like, well, I, <laughs> I guess I'm going to die. And so he gives this long sermon in Deuteronomy 28. And the first 14 verses of that sermon, he says, here are the blessings that you're going to experience if you're faithful to God. He's not saying save yourself. He's saying simply be faithful to God and worship God. He says, but in verses 15 through 68... These are the cursings that are going to happen if you're not faithful to God. And one of the last things that he says is, is that you are going to be expelled from the land. You're going to lose it. And you're going to be carried away into captivity. And that is exactly what happened about 600 years before Jesus. The Jews were carried away in the Babylonian exile for almost 100 years. And only 50,000 returned. 50,000. There were millions 
who centuries earlier had left Egyptian slavery and settled in the wilderness and in the promised land. And after their disobedience, 50,000 were left. It's a sad, sad story. But they were unfaithful to God. But if they were faithful, God would protect them. With us, we're protected from the incursions of Satan in our life. We're protected from demonic hosts. We're protected from any kind of demonizing powers in our world. The gates of hell, Jesus said, will not prevail against the church. It can't happen. The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus destroying the works of the devil. It doesn't mean that the, uh, pardon me, that, that the devil has been killed yet or thrown into the lake of fire. It means, though, that his works in our lives are so severely limited that nothing can stop the church, even when it looks like we're losing, because the plan of God will succeed by history's end. It will. There's nothing that's going to stop it. Nothing. Nothing. But not only do we have guarantees that Satan cannot attack us in, in a way that will remove our faith, we, because we can suffer. We can suffer. There are people who suffer. Our Lord suffered. Paul, Peter, James, John, all these men suffered. Church history says that 11 of the 12 disciples all died a terrible martyr's death. John the Baptist, we don't know, but he was tortured. He was exiled and put in prison. These all suffered. Why? But why did they persevere? It's because they weren't believing God for a new car. Their hope was the new creation. They knew that they were living in a broken world. Their expectation was not that their worlds would be amazing if they followed Jesus. Their expectation would be that God would protect them from temptation and from the snares of Satan and that God would give them the perseverance to fight on. He would do that for them. Not only that, but there's the presence of God. In the Old Testament, the presence of God manifested at the temple. Pillar of fire. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, Shekinah glory. Today, the presence of God is inside of everyone who follows Jesus. It's inside of us. Not only is it inside of us individually, but Peter says that we are like stones fitted together that form a temple. And when we're together, not even when we're together, but the fact that we are one in Christ, the presence of God dwells there. But gathering together as the body of Jesus, there is the real presence of Jesus among us. We are mobile tabernacles or temples. We are the walking, talking presence of God. There's nowhere that you or I can't go and the presence of Jesus isn't there. There's nowhere we can go because he's inside of us. And that means that if we're one in the spirit, one in Christ, then we have to fight real, real, real hard that there's not roots of bitterness growing between us because we are putting Jesus in that root of bitterness. We are plunging Jesus into our rage and anger, into our unforgiveness. We're taking the life of Jesus and putting it in the midst of our sin. This is why Paul could say to the, uh, to the Corinthians, he says that when you are sexually promiscuous, you are taking Jesus Christ to that bed with you. Don't do this. Feel that. Don't just let that roll off your back. Feel that. Be convicted by this. We are the people of God. We are living in exile. But as Paul says to the Ephesians, we have been raised from the dead, not by anything that we've done. If you're saved, it's not because you read the Bible enough and God decided to save you. It's not because your mom and daddy paved the way for Jesus to save you. I'm not saying that that was of no effect but if, you, if your heart is born again and you are not apathetic and totally careless about God and you have even the smallest mustard seed desire to be with Jesus and to grow in him, that is a miraculous phenomenon. I like you to drag. Miraculous phenomenon that you have in your life. You did not get that through your own works. That was given to you by the grace of God. And so I tell you, tell you, remember who you are. 
couple of closing comments. And then this wraps up our series on Proverbs, at least for now. We may come back next semester with a few more things. Am I saying that you can't have any physical blessings? No, I'm not saying that. But here's what I am saying, and here's what I believe Scripture is saying. We are not entitled to physical blessings. They're not our guarantee. We're not entitled to it. God doesn't owe you a new car. He doesn't owe you a better house. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for a new car or a better house if you need one. But I'm just, I just have a lot of trouble looking in Scripture and seeing where the Scriptures are okay with like, man, you got a good car, but man, it would be really, really nice to have, you know, seed heaters. So I'm believing God for seed heaters. I'm not saying that's unspiritual to pray a prayer like that. If you live in Alberta, you need seed heaters. You know, it's really, really cold up there. Um, it's crazy cold up there. When my wife and I got married near the Canadian Rocky Mountains where she's from, it was 20 degrees below zero on our honeymoon. It was glorious. It was so sunny and bright. Um, you need seed heaters. So I'm not going to make rules that the Bible doesn't make. All I'm going to say is, is that I, I challenge you to reach for contentment. And don't idolize the things of the world because I don't see how you can love the things of this world and love God. Jesus said that. You can't love God and love money at the same time. You can't. It's impossible. He warned us that in his, in his words, in his letters, in his letters, in his, in his preaching. Um, every good thing that happens to you, though, thank God for it. You don't have to feel guilty because you got something new. You don't have to feel guilty because maybe you spent a little bit too, too much money last week. Don't do it anymore. Be content with what you have. But when you have something wonderful, thank God for it. This world's not evil in the sense that every molecule in this world is bad. Some things are good. Having a nice new pair of shoes is really nice. Enjoy those shoes. Enjoy what you have. But be content. Be content. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless his people with physical blessings. I'm not. I think he does. I don't think we're entitled to them. But I think he does. I am saying that there is no physical blessing on this earth that compares to the blessings that we have waiting for us in the new creation. And so let that be your hope. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. I pray, God, I pray, oh God, that you would help us in our hearts to get a bigger view of who you are. Help us to see, Jesus, that the things of this world, although they are nice and can be a lot of fun, don't compare to the glories of the age to come. I pray, Jesus, that we would cling to you and long for you, learn to long for you. And I pray, oh God, that we would see ourselves the way that you see us. Ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, the seed of Abraham, And we are called to bring your blessings to all the people of the earth. And what are your blessings? That people would turn away from the wickedness that ensnares them and would find life and hope and healing and joy and peace in Jesus. It's in your name I pray, Lord. Amen.